Today on Radical Personal Finance, I have a very special interview to share with you. If you had a chance to sit down for an hour with the former president and CEO of Lehman Brothers and talk to him about uh, his career and his businesses and his money and his retirement, would you take that opportunity? Well, I did exactly that, and today I'm going to share that interview with you. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I am your host. And yes, indeed, I've wanted to bring you this interview for quite a while, and today I'm very happy to share it with you. Sat down with my friend Andy Sage and got a little bit of his story towards wealth and financial independence. Andy Sage and I have been friends for a number of years, and I've been meaning to get him on the show and wanted to do it and just hadn't gotten it done and hadn't gotten it done and hadn't gotten it done. And finally, I was able to uh, <laughs> to sit down with him. <laughs> Actually, just today, we sat down just before lunch, uh, and I brought the microphones over to his house here on Palm Beach and uh, set them up on uh, on a table and card table there and, and sat down and recorded this interview that you're just about to hear with him. Uh, in fact, you'll even hear right at the end of the interview, uh, you'll hear his wife calling us to lunch, <laughs> telling us to come and eat. Uh, she was making us wrap up on time. Um, I had a great interview. Andy Sage is a remarkable man. He's 90 years old, and he built his career. He started uh, in the bottom of the trenches right after uh, World War II. Uh, well, trenches meaning the met- – I don't know if he was in the physical trenches or not, but the metaphorical trenches on Wall Street. Worked his way up uh, and eventually left Lehman after serving as the president and CEO. You'll hear a little bit of that story today. And since then has gone on to live uh, just a really fascinating life. And he's the kind of guy that I love to spend time with because he's the kind of guy who really – Really, just uh, exudes uh, a love of life and, and a vigor and a vitality. Looks and looks and acts like a man far younger than his years. It's fantastic to see. So today, I'm going to share that with you. Share his story with you, and just sit back and listen. Uh, listen from those who have gone before, and listen to what they've done and what they did well uh, on their their journey. Before I play the interview, though, sponsor the day number one today is Paladin Registry. If you're looking for a financial advisor, it's hard to know where to start. You could start by collecting some referrals from your friends. I think that's a great idea. If you have a friend of yours that has a great financial advisor that they constantly talk about, it's great to start there. You can start by looking around and seeing who's near to you, or look in your local community. Those are great ways to start as well. Uh, but What if you don't have those options or what if you want to have a second or third opinion? When you're hiring a financial advisor, you probably shouldn't just take the first one that comes in the door. Uh, I've never really understood why people don't interview multiple advisors and get multiple opinions. You know, We do it with doctors. We do it with dentists. We do it with uh, plumbers. (laughs) Why wouldn't you do it with financial advisors? Well, that's where Paladin Registry comes in. Paladin Registry is a registry service that gives you the opportunity to sit down and talk to multiple financial advisors who have been pre-screened and pre-vetted to make sure that their business practices and their uh, just their business practices are in line with with uh, with or above board their ethical complaints no ethical complaints etc uh, uh 
Paladin was started by a man named Jack Waymeyer, who was a financial advisor, and he was frustrated with the fact that there wasn't uh, a vetting process, or excuse me, I should say an extreme vetting process. There wasn't an extreme vetting process out there. So he decided to start it. So he began Paladin Registry. Uh, if you're looking for a financial advisor, start your search at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin, P-A-L-A-D-I-N. That link will forward you right through to a landing page. You'll put in your information there on that landing page, and Paladin Registry will connect you with two or three pre-screened financial advisors for you to interview. I can't promise that you're going to find your next financial advisor with Paladin Registry. Uh, that is going to come down to personality fit. Do they really understand you and your goals, etc.? But I can at least promise that you'll be starting on a better foundation than many other people start. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin. Sponsors of the day number two today is the YNAB, You Need a Budget, acronym Y-N-A-B, YNAB, uh, the You Need a Budget budgeting software. This is the budgeting software that I use each and every day for all of my personal checking accounts. Keeps me on track, helps me to allocate the money that I need uh, to allocate towards the future, towards future goals. Big problem with most budgeting software packages is they only look to the past. They only look back and track uh, what's happened in the past. YNAB doesn't do that. I mean, it does do that. It tracks the, what's happened in the past. But more importantly, it allows you to allocate the money that's in your checking account right now. Question, does every dollar in your checking account right now have a name on it already? If not, you need YNAB. Try a free 30-day, 34-day trial at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash YNAB, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Y-N-A-B. Andy Sage, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. I'm glad to be here. So I've been wanting to get you on the show for quite a while because you have such an interesting story. And I thought it would really be a great opportunity for you to, to share that with my listeners uh, because you've, you've worked the... The halls of business, and you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. So I'd love for you just to kind of share the story. Where did you begin, and how did you get involved in the business world? Well, I, it all begins back when I went to school. Got an early start in school, but the trouble is, through carelessness primarily, my parents sent me to three years of kindergarten. <laughs> so that by the time I got into school, I was already behind a couple of years. <laughs> and things didn't go so well even then. And along the line, we lost another year. <laughs> so Finally, <you're> <laughs> I'm 18 years old, and I'm in what I guess would be uh, uh, my, I'm in my 10th grade. It's not very good. The war came along, and I turned 18. So this would have been World War II. In World War II, mm-hmm. and off I went. That was, that was in 19, early 44. So you were born in 1926. 26. So uh, I, in, this, in the Army, or in the Air, Air Corps, which then was part of the Army, I did get schooling in electronics, radio, radar, and became a radar mechanic. And uh, things went very well in that schooling as compared to the disastrous earlier stuff. Got out of the, uh, out of the Army in 1946 and uh, got a job on Wall Street as a clerk in a small specialized brokerage firm. My work was purely mechanical. Uh, for the, it was there about a year and a half, and the 
for the last half I was on the floor of the stock exchange. Uh, and then I went to work for my father, who was a broker, a specialist on the floor of the stock exchange, and I did that in, in 1947. The, the volume in the stock exchange in those cold, hard years was about one to one and a half million shares a day. <laughs> what there is now in the first nanosecond. It was boring, and I wasn't needed, and I learned a lot about playing pranks on other people working on the floor and such foolishness. <laughs> but no, no useful experience. I quit and was thinking of going to California to work in the Redwoods, uh, where my family had some timber uh, that had been in the family for a couple of generations and it might have needed some attention. I knew a partner at Lehman's from having lunch occasionally, and he invited me to come down there. He asked me if I, what I was doing. I told him nothing. He asked me if I would come down and talk to him. I didn't want to go back to Wall Street. It was boring. I didn't like it. But I couldn't really say no after I told him that I had nothing to do. So down I went, and he paid me $50 a week to go to work for Lehman Brothers, which began a uh, 25 or more years uh, career, uh, during which time I did a little bit of everything. And uh, sub at, at the end was uh, president, CEO, and... Uh, and the first uh, as managing partner, uh, which I did for two or three years, and then I'd had enough of Wall Street. <laughs> left it, moved to Wyoming, got a ranch, and continued to do work for Lehman's, continued to do other financial work, mostly fix-ups, and I worked uh, on uh, trying to repair broken-down companies for the rest of my business uh, generation. Uh, I never really quit, but most of my work came directly or indirectly from banks who had loans that weren't getting repaid. And gradually all the people that I knew in the banks and elsewhere retired. And, and in the end, they really phone stopped ringing, the fix-up stopped coming in. I didn't have an appetite for getting buying any any more of them myself. And so I ended up in a sort of a retirement. It tapered off. I wasn't interested in being on the road five days a week, almost every week of the year, which I had been. And so now I really am in a position of being a very passive investor and passing my time of day doing other kinds of things. So this term fix-ups is not a, really a common term. What does that mean? Well, it means that companies get into trouble and pay a price. Companies fall into a number of different categories, but the most common one involves companies that have borrowed money and can't repay it. When they can't repay long enough, 
the banks get angry and upset and seek a solution. But the solution isn't easy. First, there are bankruptcy laws that protect companies who are, owe people money, particularly banks, and protect them very successfully. So the bank has got a risk of never seeing their money. And usually the companies are being badly managed, not in every case, but in most cases the companies are being badly managed and the banks don't quite know what to do about it. And that's where a fix-up is required. And there are people, uh, of which I was one, that I did by myself and in partnership with others, where we go in and try to help them square away their problems, which usually are not complicated, and get on the right track. Uh, and the, the lenders either get their money or partial, part of their money. Uh, sometimes they don't. And that's, that's what I call a fix-up. A fix-up is where somebody calls and says, hey, we own a big hunk of this company, or the company owes us money, or we're partners with them, or whatever, and they're being badly run. We'd like you to go in and see what you can do to make it work. And you go in, and you're usually welcomed, and you usually find out that there's lots of things that can be done, and there are lots of people there that know how to do it, they just don't happen to be the people who are running it at the time. Uh, sometimes even the people that are running it at the time are very good, but they're just not good at, at general management. They're good at, at their work. One of the things that you learn early on is, in most of these, is that the person who was at the helm of these companies must go, and they must be seen to go. You must fire them. And if you don't, you'll have no credibility, whatever. And I've had that come up a number of times, and I learned that lesson the hard way. In one case, uh, a case of a company that I'm still involved with, uh, the guy who ran it was really pretty good. He was a management consultant. He'd gotten over his head in managing it as a business, but he had technical knowledge that was very good. I kept him on. And not in the top position, but I kept him on, useful in the company. And we were just couldn't get the lenders to be reasonable. And finally, one of them took me aside and said, you know, until somebody gets punished for what happened to us, <laughs> we're just not going to be very cooperative. And we're not going to really believe. So what you really have to do is... You have to fire that person, and you have to, he has to be seen to have been fired for you to become credible. So unfortunately, the guy wasn't much good anyway, and he had to go, and, and things opened up. These are the things you find when you get in. You also find that the, the really tough ones are the giant companies. The International Harvester is an example of one place that I went. And this company was in incredible amounts of trouble uh, for reasons that were really obvious. They continued to operate in businesses where they were unprofitable uh, and with no real justification for doing so. Uh, and there were lots of people there that knew well, what ought to happen, but it wasn't being run by the people that were doing the right things. So 
often you get there and you find it, it, the, the solutions are not very complex. The problem with giant companies, and International Harvester was a giant company, is that they can operate inefficiently and extremely inefficiently and extremely unprofitably for a long time before the wolf comes to the door and starts to eat them. Their very size gives them repute and cash reserves that allow them to make mistakes for long periods of time. Uh, I owned a, a little company at the same time I went there in Pennsylvania making filters. It was a very small company. We had sales of a couple of million dollars a year, if that. And uh, we, we, uh, it was a bit of a struggle at first, too. Uh, but if in that company, if we did anything very wrong in March, by early May, we would have been bankrupt. You did, we, did, we did just wouldn't have had the time with a small operation to operate inefficiently. What you have in the giant companies is a, a ship moving through the water that weighs a million tons, and it goes on through the water, and it's very heavy water, for a long time before it sinks. It does sink in the end. Uh, Harvester didn't. Mo most of the ones that I went survived uh, to varying degrees of success. But this is the business I got into, and I got into it w not only myself but with other partners who did the same kind of thing. And uh, it, was a, it was fun work to a point, and it was, for me, very good work because it had an end. I'm not a person who wanted to go to work. That's why I didn't want to stay at Lehman's after a while because it, as I, as I, when I began running the place, it wasn't nearly as much fun as doing the things I was doing earlier. <laughs> and I was being beaten on by uh, God knows how many partners uh, about one who didn't get as much of a bonus as the one the year before and why did it. This kind of stuff was boring and uh, unsatisfying and very much tying you down to a nine-to-five type of life. Uh, and uh, that, that really wasn't for me. The fix-ups are good. You go in, you do what you have to do, and you get out. You're greeted happily when you arrive because everybody's in trouble. You're detested by the time they're profitable and it's working. They can't wait to see the last of you, and out you go. <laughs> with, a, with a nice paycheck for your, for your work. It's <laughs> a good way to go. Yeah. At least you don't have any regrets and say, oh, maybe I should stay around longer. <laughs> no, I never wanted to stay around. I never wanted to stay around longer, and they didn't want to be reminded of what they had been. And so, my contribution, in some cases, was really fairly major. In others, it was really very minor. It, in, in, in the case of one company, uh, I, I didn't accomplish much except per persuading the board that they should not file Chapter 11 with that company uh, because it would be disastrous. And I don't know that I personally did much more. My, that was my main contribution, was keeping them from filing until they were able to survive. I didn't have to do very much physical work. In others, I really had to get in and uh, right, on, right, on, right in, the, in the line of, of work and, uh, and do jobs. Always I had to travel. Always I had to rent apartments or wherever it is because 
no companies that get in this kind of trouble obliged me by being next door where I could drive to them. Hmm. Uh, and that, so that, that, that period had to end also. How do they calculate compensation for somebody like for doing a job like that? Is it based on a contract? Is it based on performance? How do, how do you figure that out? In various, various ways. Uh, one typical way was that a number of the businesses were businesses that came out of Lehman Brothers. Where I, was, I still stayed involved with Lehman Brothers, even though I, I stopped going to work every day. And so a lot of the stuff came from Lehman Brothers, and I was doing that while being paid to do it by, by Lehman's. In uh, lots of them, I became, most of them really, I, I, be, I was on the board and involved in the companies themselves, with or without Lehman's, and in which case I was compensated by the, uh, by the company that I was working for. Uh, those were, and, and the last case is, that in some cases, uh, one in particular that still sur survives, I became an owner of the company that I went in to start fixing, and my compensation ceased because I didn't couldn't afford to pay myself out of a out of a failing company. <laughs> uh, but the compensation came in in getting rid of the things that didn't work and making something of the things that did work. And in the end, the compensation in that was just a compensation of ownership. Right, right. So you had a little bit of probably some more things I haven't even thought of. When you were at Lehman, you began, it sounds like, you said you started earning $50 a week at a very low-level position. And when you left, you were a CEO and president. Uh, what types of work did you do over the course of your 25 years there? And how did it progress where you were able to go from entry level to top management? Well, I went to entry level. I went to entry level. It's true, and I had been in the street for a year and a half on the on the stock exchange, which lent some sort of credibility. Though in hindsight, the credibility was worthless. Uh, I I started by going from department to department as a trainee, and. Uh, Eventually, I got into what we call the industrial department, which was a corporate finance department. And its work there was to write memoranda and prepare work for the partners of the firm to go and deal with the companies, RCA and other companies that were clients. And mind you, the clients of an investment banking firm uh, use you when they want to raise money by selling stocks, by selling bonds, or, or something in between. So Lehman's is a financing company, and you're doing financing work. And I did work in the trenches for about seven years, uh, writing memos for people to carry to their clients. And then uh, I moved into a different section uh, which was called the syndicate. The syndicate is the part of Lehman Brothers that that forms a group of brokerage firms and in smaller investment banking firms and big ones around the country to sell stocks and bonds in, in wholesale amounts. So you had to have contacts, daily contacts, with 80 or 90 
firms that become part of your syndicate as you put them together to do an offering of corporate securities. And I ran that for a number of years and gradually got more into management uh, and less into doing uh, the actual work. I had clients by then of my own and I was on some boards. And uh, I ended up in management, not because I wanted to be, but because one day Lehman Brothers woke up and found, the back office found that it was unable to identify $400 million of securities that they had on hand in their vaults, and that they were unable to find $200 million of securities that other people were claiming we had and we couldn't find. And this mess ended up with an SEC intervention and censure, and the firm was in real trouble. Our computers were a system and a product of a company who was our client. It was chosen by Lehman Brothers only because it was a client, not because it was a, had any particularly good computers, which it didn't. And it brought with it a workforce which were equally ineffective. We have, the problem we got into of not being able to find securities or having too many stemmed from moving from a bookkeeping pen and ink business to a computer business. The computer business was an utter disaster. Somebody had to do something about it, and really all the people at Lehman's were financiers and didn't know anything about this kind of thing. And I grabbed the, grabbed the handle of this problem just because I had to. I took a short course given by Harvard Business School, I think, uh, but not in Massachusetts, in New Jersey somewhere in computers, and then got rid of the RCAs, got IBM computers, got rid of all the people that we had in that area, got new people, and, uh, and had, uh, I think, 100 people, temporary people from an accounting firm just come in to physically do work in the basements of, of buildings in New York where these securities were residing. And in the end, uh, we straightened it all out, and our differences were insignificant, and everybody lived happily ever after. But by then, I was involved in management rather than in, in investment banking. And that, that is why I ended up really in a management position other than an investment banker's position, which I later found I liked better anyway. When you look back, uh, what, because from the sound of your kindergarten experience, you didn't have an auspicious start to your career. No. <laughs> you didn't really seem to excel in school, uh, at least at that, at that stage, as you said, with, with another year sprinkled in between. But yet you passed through the ranks of a large and very respected uh, Wall Street company. What were the character traits or personal habits that in hindsight you can look back and identify that served you well during your career at Lehman Brothers? Well, I, I, there's a couple of things. One is I, I, I did take it seriously. I did show up every day. I did work. I did what I had to do. I was not a person who was going to work 16 hours 
uh, a day or anything like that, but I was conscientious, and I think I had good judgment. And I think on the whole, I got on very well with the management. I got on always very well with Bobby Lehman. And uh, I was able to work well with people. I think that was probably the main thing. I don't think I was... I, the fact that I had no education and I hadn't been to a business school was utterly meaningless. We had a... We, in our industry then, we and our competitors put a big, big powerful exclamation point on how many people we got out of the good business schools and all that stuff. Complete waste of time. Didn't make any difference whether we got the people out of, like me, out of nowhere or out of colleges or out of high schools or anything else. We taught them what they needed to know about accounting and about finance. And we had to teach them whether they came out of the business schools or whether they came out of eighth grade. Didn't, really didn't make any difference. Uh, so, uh, what I really did was, I, I attribute my success to largely to what I learned at Lehman Brothers. And I learned so much that you don't learn in school and from people who really can teach but don't know they're teachers. I can make two examples. One is, I had a boss named Morris Nadelson in the department I worked for seven years, grinding away on, on memos and stuff. And he trained me in so many things. One day, I had a person come in with a deal, and he wanted the finder's fee for bringing it to us, and he wanted 20%. And I had told him pretty much that 20% was more than we ever paid to anybody, and uh, we were kind of at a standstill, but he was going to come in for another meeting. My boss said, you know, this is a no deal anyway. This is not going to happen. It's worthless. But I think it's worth it to give you some training. So we're going to meet with Mr. Kramer, who was the man who came in, you and I. And all I want you to do is to fight for the firm's position. Take the position that we never pay more than 10%, never had paid more than 10%. We don't want to set a precedent. And no matter what I say, I want you to take that position and hold it. So Mr. Kramer came in, and Mr. Nadelson and I sat in the room, and we got after 10 minutes of pleasantries, we get into the thing, and finally we get to the finder's fee. And Mr. Kramer says, you know, I've I know I've been difficult, but I have to have the 20% that I'm asking for because I'm doing more than anybody's ever done, blah, 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 blah. And I do what I'm told. I say, you know, we can't do that. Here are the reasons, here are five reasons why we just really are not in a position to do it. And they know Nadelson's my boss. Morris says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Andy, I think you're, jump I think you're jumping the gun a little bit. You haven't really listened to Mr. Kramer out. Didn't you say, Mr. Kramer, that you did this and that and the other thing? Yeah. He said, you know, I think you better think twice. And guess what? Over the next 15 or 20 minutes, Mr. Kramer's out of the conversation. And Mr. Nadelson and Mr. Sage are having a negotiation. And he fights like a tiger for, for Mr. Nadelson, I mean, for Mr. Kramer. But guess what? At the end, Morris... Nielsen says, you know, you're right. I guess we really can't do it. And, and it, was, the, the, it was over. The 10% was set. 
and Mr. Kramer went out the door and didn't know what hit him. <laughs> and, and, and again, my boss said to me, you know, we'll probably never see him again. His, it's a no deal, I can tell by talking to him. I didn't do this because I really cared about Mr. Kramer, Kramer's 20%. I did it because I'm teaching you a, a element of negotiation and how to use two-on-one two -on -one negotiations Good cop, bad cop, or call it what you uh -huh. want. Right. And I, you learn from this stuff. They don't right. teach you in schools. Don't teach you. They teach you about labor contracts. They don't teach you how to negotiate them. Bobby Lehman, one day when I was really very high in the firm, again, we were talking about that same department where the same department where they do the, the statistical and grinding work of turning out finance documents. And... Bobby, got, Bobby Lehman got me and, and said that uh, I should bear in mind that he, he saw, he knew uh, Mr. Osborne was running the company and doing, running the division and doing very well. But he said that he, that what I had to be careful of was that he didn't promote only the people who would grind 20 hours a day and work 370 days a year and kill themselves grinding out the kind of memorandums that he wanted. Because he said, you know, everybody you have in that department, if he stays with us and he's 28 years old now, he's going to be 38 years old 10 years from now and 48 years old 20 years from now, and he won't be writing those documents and those memorandums and grinding out multi-column spreadsheets. He'll be talking to RCA and IBM and various people who you have or, or, or hope to have as clients. And you want to be careful that you don't bring up and promote only the grinders, but that you look at each of these people you have in your department. And if you see somebody who says he may only be working eight hours a day, but he's doing it and he's conscientious. But if he's not killing himself and he's not the greatest spreadsheet maker in the world and you're looking at somebody who's going to be the kind of person you want to send to your best client 10 years from now, you want to be sure he's still there and you haven't just promoted a, lot, a whole, whole, whole lot of grinders who won't be grinding 10 years from now. Uh, and that's the kind of lessons that you get that you don't necessarily think about yourself. And I thought about it, and it, it, it was kind of happening. He knew it. Uh, Bobby Lehman, I learned so much from him, and he didn't know stock from livestock. He knew nothing about the finance business. He, he knew about running a, a, a firm and, and people and who to promote and who not to promote and who to get rid of and who to keep and how to make salesmen work. Uh, he was not a technician at all himself, and he didn't need it. Wow. Do you think, so what year did you leave Lehman? What, what calendar year did you leave Lehman Brothers? 1973. Fast forward as we record this, is 2017. Based upon your knowledge and contacts and exposure that you have to the business world as it continues to be today, do you believe that it's still possible for people to have the type of career that you had back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? To go from the big, you know, the starting place like you did, up through, you know, president and CEO, or has the world changed since then? The business world? anything is possible, but it'd be harder. Why? Why? It would why be, would you it say would it's be harder? harder today? First place, 
I came I came out, and I should have covered this really when you asked me how I got into the in the senior management. I came out of wartime. I came in to, to the firm in 1948, but the war really hadn't ended till 46. So my bosses, the people I worked for, mostly male, mostly had been in the service during the war. They'd only gotten there, they got back a year, a year, a year and a half before I did. So I grew up in a generation of, of my parents' age rather, rather than myself. My seniority in the firm came very quickly because the people I worked for had only been there two years or three years longer than I had, for the, not Bobby Lehman, but, but, but most of them. So uh, in the end, uh, by the time I was 27 or 28, been there eight years, I was hiring people my age that were just coming out of business schools. Uh, so I, I got boosted up, really, a whole generation, because in 1946, the no males had been employed in any company. You could get a job no matter who you were or what you were doing. It was not hard. It, it, it just hadn't everybody, everybody had been in the service. I don't think uh, that with my not even, not even a high, even two years away from a high school diploma, I could possibly have gotten hired into a into a company like that, and uh, succeeded. So I would have had to have been a a uh, Steve Wozniak or or uh, Steve Jobs or something like that, and and be a incredible genius and go uh, go on my own and make it into, into really into the top. It's possible, but honestly, in my case, it would have been tough going. Now I'm not saying that that I couldn't have gotten the I did get the first job I got because they were looking for people to, at the first brokerage firm I went to. It didn't matter. And when I went to Lehman's, I knew the partner who invited me, and no one ever asked me. They didn't even ask me where I went to school. It, it never even came up. They knew I'd worked in the street, and they hired me for the fifty bucks a week and put me in. Uh, I think that. Uh, I think that that part would be really tough now. If you, all you can show is that you're 18 and you're still in the two years away from being a high school senior, it'd be very, very, very hard to get a job now. You know, maybe in McDonald's, but but a real job be very, very hard, very hard to do. I have a granddaughter who's been to school forever, and she's a a computer generated artist. And uh, uh, she's having, she's got a job, but she's not having an easy time of it. Uh, she wants to be in the, in the, probably in the gaming industry or someplace where computer graphics are really vital. And, and, and the training is tremendous. Uh, and she'll get something, but it's not, not, not as easy as I got when I started. So I think that uh, I was really very lucky I wouldn't recommend to anybody that they just drop out of school for the hell of it and uh, hope, hope for the best to end up in a really good job. I want to ask one more question. And luck is tremendous. 
Right. I want to ask one more question about your career and then transition to some of the life lessons you've learned uh, with regard to lifestyle and personal finance. Uh, obviously, as we sit here in 2017, we are a decade removed from the financial crisis in which Lehman Brothers played uh, kind of a leading. <laughs> how do how do I how do I phrase a leading this? role? Yeah. A leading <laughs> role a decade ago. And I'm just curious. From your, you you were inside uh, the Wall Street world, and then you kind of went outside and involved in the business world. And now you've watched Lehman a decade ago go bankrupt, and then today, um, you know, we're a decade after that. But of course, you're still an astute investor and pay attention. I wonder oftentimes how much trust to place into companies especially how much trust is placed in, into financial companies. Because it seems very hard for me to discern from an external perspective what's actually going on versus you know, what the insiders know. Do you, what advice would you give to somebody like me who's looking to be thoughtful and careful with regard to financial institutions? I'm looking to be reasonable, to be practical, to, be, to deal with facts, but also, you know, we have have concerns. How do how do I even approach that philosophically in today's world? Well, the best you can, but you want to be very very careful. The decade ago market crash was no accident. It came about from a combination of three things. Stupidity, greed, and incompetence. And when you put those three things together, you really have a, a disaster. Now, if you own a shoe store and you do that, it's too bad. And despite the fact that you hire somebody like I used to be to be a fixer or whatever, your shoe store will go down and it's not the end of the world. And even if it's an automobile company, it's not the end of the world. And if it's the government, it gets close to the end of the world, and if it's high finance, it is the end of the world. And you had those three ingredients there it, then, and you would be very ill-advised to assume that some wonderful thing has happened and none of those three characteristics are not there anymore. If it's just another way of saying, be very, very careful. The problem isn't with investment banks. They, they're, they're, service, they're service oriented. The truth is, a Lehman Brothers going down sounds terrible, but it really didn't make any difference. A Citibank going down would make the difference of life and death for all of us. We have the, because once something like that happens, everybody runs on all the banks, and we all know that the banks spend and use a huge multiple of the amount of the deposits they had, and that if they, anybody lined up to get, everybody lined it up in one day to get their deposits out of any bank, it couldn't be done. So you have a situation where you could have an absolute total crash, which could have well happened back in 2009 or whatever it was. Uh, but the, the, what was left of the Bush, Bush administration and the Obama administration bailed out the banks as they absolutely had to do. Uh, 
and, and a little bit more than the banks. Uh, but they had to be bailed out. They caused the failure of the country. And uh, unsupervised, and they were not adequately supervised. And the result was nearly utterly catastrophic. Uh, if I have to think about financial difficulties that might come across my path, failure of the financial system as a result of the banks is certainly high on the list. Lehman Brothers never was a bank. A number of other people who were not banks either, such as Goldman Sachs and others, de declared themselves banks. What you're saying is they were never commercial banks. They, they were, were investment they banks. They were never commercial. Right. They were never commercial banks. They right. were investment they didn't banks. Take, they didn't take creditors. They didn't take people's deposits they, and write checks. That's they, the function that's, of a commercial that, that's, bank. That's what, that's what right. a ba bank is. It holds depositors' money. Mm -hmm. Right. But not technically. You can be a bank if you qualify and you have good enough lawyers, and you can, be a, you can be, declare yourself a bank overnight and be available for federal aid and whatever it is. But these aren't the companies I worry about. They're service companies, and they're usually smarter. The ones I worry about are the big, giant commercial banks, any one of which, if it failed, could cause a spiral that could run all our bloods cold in terms of any other investments we have. It's really, really very serious. It, money is a confidence game. You have to have confidence. Values... If I, if, I, if I buy a house for $100,000 and it's now worth a million dollars, I feel I'm worth a million dollars. But I'm not. I only paid $100,000. That's the money that was paid. Right. The rest of it is confidence. The rest of it is confidence. And that's, that's, that's a smaller multiple than we, than we have to think about. So we're living in confidence of our very existence and our financial existence and if anything breaks that confidence, markets crash. Not only, not only the stock market, but the real estate market, which everybody thought couldn't crash, it crashed. So all of a sudden, you don't have what you think you have, and you stop spending, and the spiral is fatal. And this is always a risk, and I think the, the, the biggest risk of all is the, is the, is the confidence. Um, how, do you, how do you protect yourself against that? I don't know how you protect yourself against that. You try not to do not to do extremes, and you certainly supervise anything that's that important has to be supervised, and you never let up on your supervise, supervising of big banks. You see it over and over again. You see it here. You see it now in Deutsche Bank. You see it in Wells Fargo, where uh, a a commission system for getting new accounts gets carried to the point where in, it, the money is unbelievably large and you have thousands of employees in, that, that couldn't even be kept because they were involved in, the, uh, in basically fraudulent internal accounting. Not external, not, not, not dangerous in itself to the financial world, but it just shows the lack of control or the difficulty of controlling a business where you have senior executives by the hundreds of thousands spread all over the world in banks and, and, and in, in bank branches. And it, it would be unrealistic to think that you don't have to have confidence that that's being guarded. 
and that you have every safeguard in there that you can think of so that you don't allow one of these great big banks to fail. There have been, there has been a movement, uh, hasn't gone much of anywhere, of, of putting some kind of a limit on the size of a bank. And uh, I think that's, that sort of thing really isn't what you want to do in a, in a, in a free market and enterprising country like the United States. But it's something you want to be thinking about. You want to be thinking about why people even want to do it and put in every safeguard you can to try and see that something doesn't go to pieces, that traders don't take positions that you can't find. It's, there's so many, many things when you come to big amounts of money and where they can be stored and, and uh, just do the best you can. And uh, But I think it's... I think it's the biggest single risk to the to the economy and to the stock market is the uh, is the is the is that the danger of a catastrophic mess right. in the banking system. All right, and it's only gotten worse in the last decade. Um, they're calling us. It for, has gotten worse in the last decade. Yeah, yeah. by far. We would you'd think <laughs> we could talk all afternoon. They're calling us for lunch, so I only got time for one question. I may have to come back and do another interview, just like specifically on 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 finance sometime. But maybe I'll just kind of close with this. Um, you are ninety, ninety one now. Ninety one. Ninety one. No, I'm not ninety. You're 90. almost okay. ninety. Almost ninety one. Okay, so you're ninety years old. Um, do you think of yourself as retired at this point? Well, I. I'm retired from employment, yes. Uh, I can't think of anybody that's paying me any money to do anything, uh, though maybe. But I'm I'm not retired in that I have to work to see that my own money is protected. I'm not very rich, but I'm not very poor, and uh, and that keeps me busy. I just got to clarify for my audience: when Andy says I'm not very rich, but I'm not very poor. We're, you know, you live in beautiful place here in Palm Beach, Florida. In the standards of in the standards of global wealth, you've done all right. Yeah, I've done, absolutely, absolutely. When but, we but compare I, ourselves to, but I, we got these hundreds, millions, and billions and things. I'm not, I'm not, I don't come from an era where that happened, really. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, when I was a, I went to the university fifty dollars a week. When I was made a partner. And I think I might have been 32 or three or four, so in my early 30s. I think I think I got 19,000. Being a the, general partner, non-inflation adjusted. One dollars. of about 30 or 25 right. or 30 general partners in a major thing. I was. I got. I wasn't getting quite twenty thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars when I, I. I don't really remember, but I think when I was running the firm, I think I, I got a, a million dollars. Uh, the same person now began seventy-two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right. it, I didn't. I didn't grow up in an era right. uh, where the money the money was the kind of money it is now. And if I had, I'd, I'd have more than I have. And I'm comfortable, but I, I'm not in the league of, I'm not the league of people that, that have or had 
recently had jobs at the level of the, of the one I right. had then. Right. So when you look at, so, and the reason I ask is I just simply have noticed this, uh, and my audience knows the question that's coming because it's a constant refrain. I spent years working as a financial advisor, and a major core aspect of that was this concept of retirement. The idea of retirement being kind of the traditional work, save money in your 401k until you're 65 so you can afford to quit your job and go and live the life that you really love. But I came to notice two things. I came to notice that, um, number one, the vast majority of people who want to retire will never financially be able to accumulate the money to retire simply because they don't save enough money and their returns are too low and it's mathematically impossible uh, absent some crazy you know, speculative speculation in something. And the second thing I noticed was that the people who are the most financially in the position to retire very rarely ever chose to do that. They've always chosen to continue to be involved. Now, they might change. They might go from earning a salary to earning a stipend. They're sitting on a board. They're you know, working for a nonprofit. They're continuing to manage their own things. But a lot of times, the wealthiest people never really retire. They certainly change. They pull back. They move out of responsibility. And so I've tried to point that out to recognize that the whole financial industry, the retail investment industry, is built around a flawed concept, built around this lifestyle that no one's really ever going to do. And here you are at 90 years old, almost 91 years old, and you're active and you're fit and you're here with, dancing with your wife. And my listeners can, can tell the passion that's coming out of your voice for business. And you're mentally alert. You look strong. You, like, you look like a much younger man. And I would attribute that to your non-retirement. So I'm just interested as we close, do you have any opinion on the subject of retirement from your observation and experience in the world? Well... Yeah, I, it, I just agree with everything. You, I agree with everything you said. It's a, it's a, in my case, I was very sloppy about it. I, I really, I never really thought about it. I could have got a retirement from Lehman Brothers. I didn't even get it. I didn't even ask. Didn't even set it up because I went out so gradually. I, I was, I was president. Then I became a vice chairman. Then I became a consultant and, and just drifted off, and I never even formally left the place. Uh, so, still, so, you're still on their paper employee roll somewhere. The only thing I got was the health insurance, and, and that that disappeared when they went broke. So, so uh, I, I, I person, personally, I didn't have to, and I didn't do much. I get a retirement here and there. I've served on a lot of boards, of, of, of big companies. Uh, they don't have retirements. Uh, so I, I never got really a retirement, but I did get enough money to be able to manage my own sort of retirement. Uh, but that, that's just lucky. Most people, that, that isn't going to happen, and it, the system is flawed, and it's going to fall more and more uh, on the people that... The, what the, uh, the upside of that is that people make... I mean, people... Don't, nobody goes to work for $50 a week anymore. And, and if, if people are reasonably successful, they'll be able to look after their parents to some extent. The parents will have saved enough to get by. But it's tough. Yeah. Not, not easy. All right. She's saying we're done. <laughs> Andy, thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for... Um, 
for doing the interview here. I think it's really been a service to my audience. I just want to thank you for uh, your friendship to me over the years. And I, I, we could talk all afternoon. I've enjoyed hearing the lessons that, uh, that you have to share. Any closing thoughts as far as final words of advice or encouragement to my listeners? If anything, the, we talked about safety. We talked about retirement. If it's very hard to find, provide any real answers, but I find that I've drifted toward real estate. It ain't perfect, and not, 2009 showed the bad things that can happen. But on the whole, I tend to think that real estate investments are some something between safe. And 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 not safe. Uh, I just think it, it, for me, I don't really dare go into the stock market at ninety because one bad turn could do me, and, and I won't have time to get back. Right. And I have leaned. I've just kind of fallen, sort of, to buying condos and renting them out, or or commercial real estate, and and getting a combination of, of return for my money and hopefully appreciation on the land. That, that's kind of, kind of the direction I've gone in. Uh, it, it, for my own retirement, that's kind of what it is. It takes a little work, but, but I think it's worth doing. Simplicity is to be valued when it comes to investing, and real estate has the hallmarks of being relatively simple. Yeah. It's, hey, when do you want to have <laughs> right, got right now. Sure, I'm, I'm, <laughs> Andy, thank you for coming on. <laughs> Can you take that out? We're done. We're done. Thank you, Andy. All right. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed and appreciated that interview with Andy. Just a couple of quick thoughts uh, as I hit the music here uh, as we go. Uh, first of all, if you enjoyed that, um, recognize the fact that you don't only have to listen to podcasts that have interviews in them. There's somebody in your town right near you who has similar experiences to Andy. Have you gone and sought them out? Have you gone and sat down with them and asked them for their advice or dug into their career? I think you can learn a lot by doing that. Don't leave it just to me and the podcast. Go sit down with somebody in your local community. Andy's a neat guy. He's, he's just always given back. I hope you paid attention to his comments there on retirement there at the end. I've known him for quite a while, uh, and I'll just affirm that um, you know he doesn't sit around and do nothing. He's busy. He's active, and his life <laughs> reflects that. You can do the same thing. Uh, if you enjoyed that con- uh, interview, I-, I know we got a little bit short there at the end, uh, but if you enjoyed that, come by the show page for today's. Come by the radicalpersonalfinance.com. Comment on the show. Uh, I-, I can go back and do another interview. If you enjoy this, let me know what you'd like me to ask him about. I'd plan to ask him more about personal finance, his approach to investing, etc. And I'm sure he'd love to do another interview. But if you enjoyed that, come by radicalpersonalfinance.com and give me the questions that you'd like to ask or the things that you'd like to hear from Andy. And, and who knows, perhaps we can set up another one where we have a little bit more time. 
For now, though, that's all. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron directly to support me. It uh, allows me to continue doing this kind of work for you uh, with the regularity and the frequency. You can do that at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Become a patron of the show. Um, totally voluntary, but if you find value from this and you'd like to pay me for it, come by RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron and sign up to support the show. You can do it as cheaply as a buck a month, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, whatever you want. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. And I'll be back with you too soon. Mm-hmm.